pray one more time with me, please. Father, we ask simply that you would come now and that you would give me a mouth to speak. Lord, that you would come now with mighty wind and with rushing power through your spirit to give illumination, Lord, uh, to your word, Father, that you would give us understanding, that you would open up our heart and mind to receive. Give us a heart, Lord, that is pliable. Give us a heart that is responsive to biblical truth. Father, I ask that it, uh, as we go through this section of Scripture that each one of us would uh, gain uh, a certain amount of instruction for our own lives. And so we ask that by Your Spirit You would apply these things to us, that there would be a, a, a prophetic power in Your Word today, that each of us would be cut to the heart and impacted by what Your words declare to us Father, we ask for lives to be changed. We ask for our walks to be um, not only encouraged and strengthened, but that we would grow in the knowledge of the same. Lord, that we would um, produce fruit that is befitting repentance and that we would follow in the examples of men and women of old who have gone before us and the instruction that they left behind for us that we may imitate their faith. Father, help us to see ourselves in the light of Your eternal counsel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes the Lord just orchestrates things the way that He has here lately uh, in our church and for me in particular just because we have in Sunday school uh, shifted gears from biblical theology to practical theology. Uh, we have done so much work in theoretical theology. We looked at systematic theology. We looked at biblical theology. And now our church is going into a season of practical theology where we're going to get really practical. And we're going to ask the Lord to give us strength now to apply the Word of God to our lives and look at Scripture in that way. Well, there could be nothing more practical than what is before us here in this passage of Scripture. And we are going to spend some time here. Uh, needless to say, these several verses that we have read here, we will handle over the course of the next few weeks. And um, I want to... I want to just bring into focus what it is that this passage is setting in front of us. And if you would, if you need a title for this message and for the the, the messages to come, uh, you can entitle it something like, What We Must Do to Enter the Hall of Faith or Entering the Hall of Faith. Because, of course, you understand that this chapter, chapter 11, has been affectionately referred to as the Hall of Faith. It is called that because in this chapter you see individual after individual, person after person. You see, you see uh, Abel, you see uh, Enoch, you see Noah, you see Abraham, you see Sarah, and you will see others and others and others who have been positioned in this uh, chapter as examples of faith that we are to follow. Now think about the Hall of Faith and compare it to the Hall of Fame. You know, athletes work tirelessly their whole life 
to try to achieve the most prestigious status of all in all of sports, and that is that they would be inductees into the Hall of Fame, that their names would be placed in there and up there uh, next to the greatest. And they do whatever they have to do. They discipline themselves. They, 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 they work tirelessly. They, 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 they beat their body into submission, as it were. They, they go through strenuous exercise and discipline. They wake up at early hours of the day. They exercise to the point of exhaustion, um, in order to enter the Hall of Faith. I'll never forget watching an interview with Kobe Bryant, who is a Hall of Famer. Um, who was reporting about his exercise regimen. He says there was a period of time in his life where he would get up and he would do 2,000 fadeaway jumpers to the point of exhaustion, even to the point of vomiting. Sorry. But that just shows you the resolve, the commitment. And now his name is connected with all the other elite players of the world, or it will be. And so therefore, we have been surrounded, as Hebrew says, by a great cloud of witnesses. And the imperative question for us is, how will we be in the hall of faith? How will we be next to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Enoch, Abel, Sarah, Moses, and all the others? I think that this um, this passage of Scripture, as it were, is giving us, what does it look like to be in that society, not of elite athletes, brothers and sisters, but of exiles and strangers, of pilgrims, really. We have this incredible society that we belong to in the church, this incredible association in the church. But we also have a great goal, and that is what this passage of Scripture is giving us here, is the goal of our lives, what what we should be striving after. And let me begin by saying that to enter the hall of faith requires a new identity. Very simple. And that is what we want to extrapolate today. This new identity. In order to do that, we're going to focus mainly on verse 13. Read it with me again. Look at the text. All of these, that is those that are mentioned before, Sarah, Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Abel, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a, from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So you better believe that the identity that I'm talking about is the identity of a pilgrim. Call it whatever you want. Use the terms that are used here. A stranger, an exile on the earth. Without question, we need a new identity to enter into the hall of faith. And this is what I want to call it, to be more specific. Not just a new identity, but listen now, a counter-cultural identity. And this will become progressively clear as we go along why I've chosen the term counter-cultural cultural. It's not just to be edgy. It's not just for shock value. It's for the purpose of trying to reflect honestly and adequately and 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 uh, uh, accurately what the, 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 the phraseology and the terms that are going to be given to us here, what they mean. Before we talk about the various features of the faith that is mentioned here, we have to begin more fundamentally 
Not with the features of faith, but with the fact of faith. The fact of faith. You know, as we go into a time of practical theology in our church, not just studying the practical parts of the book of Hebrews and practical theology in Sunday school and things like that, we have to come to the honest appraisal of self-examination. The Bible says over and over, examine yourself. The Bible says to examine yourself when you take the Lord's Supper. The Bible says examine yourself as to whether or not you are in the faith. It says First Corinthians, or excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. And in many other places, there is a call for self-evaluation, self-examination. It's not very popular today, but it is true and biblical. Self-examination is a biblical concept. And where does all self-examination begin? All self-examination begins with genuine faith or the reality of faith or the fact of faith. The fact that the, the, the presence of saving faith is something in us. Charles Spurgeon, when he was writing uh, lectures or preaching lectures to a group of, of pastors, um, he has a, a chapter in his book, um, uh, Lectures to My Students, where he talks about the minister's self-watch, where he tells even pastors that uh, a step one, he says, we ought to be saved men ourselves. Wow. Because, of course, you understand that many people who occupy the pulpit today are not saved. That shouldn't shock us. John Wesley, for example, was preaching and evangelizing and graduated from seminary all from a non-converted perspective. Incredible. And so self-examination is very good for us. We need to determine, do we have saving faith? That is absolutely critical to everything. But there's good news in this as well. Uh, the fact of faith means that with the presence of faith, in a sense, we are all in the hall of faith. It is faith in Jesus Christ that ultimately qualifies us to stand with the people of God. That's what it is. All of these died in faith, the text says. Uh, of course, they died they died in a state of faith. They died believing, but they also died exercising faith. They also died utilizing faith, exercising faith in the promises of God. This is where all counter, countercultural living begins. It all begins with genuine conversion. You understand that genuine conversion necessarily leads to a lifestyle different than what is called in the Bible, the world. We're not of the world. We may be in the world, but as Jesus Himself says, we've been taken out of the world. And anybody who has the fact of faith, the presence of saving faith, manifested in, in humble obedience no matter how imperfect it is, manifest that in fact they are in the people of God and they have been taken out of the world. You see, to be genuinely saved means that you are genuinely transformed. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we are being transformed from one glory to the next. This transformation is what sanctification is really all about. 
And sanctification, even if you go there, 2 Corinthians 3.18, you will notice that all sanctification is, is greater conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Christ is the prototypical pilgrim. He is the alien who came from another world. That called his people to live for another world. Let me read to you a verse. John 7, verse 6. You can go there if you want. Why is Jesus so unpopular today? I'm not, talk, I'm not talking about the liberal Jesus, the politically correct Jesus. I'm talking about the true, authentic, fire and brimstone Jesus. <laughs> why is that Jesus so unpopular and unacceptable today in popular culture? I'll tell you why. John chapter 7, verse 6 through 7. Listen to what Jesus says. As his, his unbelieving family members are trying to pressure him to come out into the public and just declare who he is openly and stop messing around and beating around the bush and just come out and tell people who you are, go to the feast and declare who you are, Jesus says, my time is not here. My time is, is not yet here. But your time is always here. It's always acceptable, basically what he's saying, because they were unconverted. It's always acceptable for you to come out in public view and be who you are. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Wow. Jesus was far too puritanical for the world. Jesus who could not lie, would not lie, would never lie. Jesus who would never compromise. Jesus who would never deviate from the law of God. Jesus who would never speak anything other but the absolute truth all the time and in every place was incompatible with this dark world. Because he testifies to the world that its deeds are evil. This is why Jesus is the prototypical pilgrim. He is the ultimate example of what does it mean to live with a kingdom ethic in a fallen kingdom like ours. You know, the disciples would uh, learn that, in fact, what Jesus was doing here would be very meaningful to them. In fact, it would be programmatic for them. Because later on in the book of John, Jesus tells his disciples this. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not, but, but because you are not of the world, now listen this carefully now, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. And that language is becoming far, far more unpopular today as everywhere you look in Christendom, uh, in every corner, it seems that more and more uh, the, the craze of the day is how do we become more compatible with the world? How do we fit in with the world? How do we mesh with the world? How do we blend with the world? How do we look and sound and play and music and everything and act and cinematography and everything like the world? That wasn't Jesus' appraisal of things. Jesus was calling his, his people to a pilgrim life, to an alien life, to a life of estrangement from the world. Following Jesus is serious business. As one pre preacher said, Jesus only requires one thing of you, everything. He told the disciples in the Gospels, drop what you're doing 
and come and follow me. Leave everything. Follow me. She says, if you won't deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Now that may seem like an exceedingly cruel thing to say. But it is the person who has not at all yet come to grips with the reality of what it is that they're dealing with when they have the Son of God in their midst calling them to total allegiance, total abandonment of their own lives for the sake of His glory, His name, His kingdom, His praise. The person who has not seen that is completely and altogether out of touch with reality. Jesus says, this is the way that it ought to work with all of you. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found. He stumbles upon the treasure and he says, I know what I'll do. I will sell everything. That's the operative word. Everything. Buy the field and get the treasure. Jesus is saying, you have not understood the reality of the situation if you don't understand that what I'm worth is you selling everything, losing all your identity, all your friends, your family, your belonging, your familiarity, everything, cast it aside for one all-important, all-determinate purpose so that you may buy the field and get the treasure. He is the treasure. He is the treasure that is worth for us to give our life away. To abandon. Oh, I don't care how domesticated Jesus has become in your mind or in mine. Jesus is radical. And He calls us to radical abandonment of self. It's time for us to do heart work and examine. Where are we with that? Where is our allegiance? Are we following our master how we should? Are we still making occasions and and we are still sort of driving the pegs of our tents into this world a little too deep, trying to hang on to the former life? Oh, Jesus says, come and follow me. Throw down your nets and come and follow me. Matthew, leave your little tax booth and come and follow me. I trust that I'm surrounded by people in this church who have heard that exact voice. Leave your old lifestyle. Come and follow me. That doesn't define you anymore. Leave your old friends. Come and follow me. They do not define you anymore. Leave your career. That career doesn't define you. Come and follow me. Leave your ambitions. Those ambitions don't define you. Furthermore, those ambitions will not satisfy you. Come and follow me. What a mercy and grace of God. God liberates us and frees us from the captivity of lesser things that cannot satisfy, that will not reward us as they promise. Total different identity. Because we are in the faith, because of the fact of faith, the old man has been crucified with Christ. We are a new creation. And the result of that is that God's seal is now upon us. And the result of that, God is not ashamed to be called our God, even as we read. 
Our pilgrim identity means that we have told, we have a totally different identity with a totally different hope and a totally different life. Or at least we ought to. And that's where we're going. Next, to enter the hall of faith means that you have a totally different identity and now you have a totally different hope. A counter-cultural hope. We're living in a culture that says, give it to me now. <laughs> right? Aren't you there? You ever had anybody frustrated because you don't text them back real quick? Right? What is that evidence of? It's evidence that they live in this instantaneous gratification culture. We want it now. We want it my way. Right? Everybody thinks they're entitled to a microwave oven life. Right? Bing, bing, bing. Fast cook. Boom, boom, boom. Bam. It's out. It's done. That food's probably no good for you anyway. ATM reality. Where you go up there, you get quick cash, no questions, no hassles, period. But faith is not that way. Faith is patient. Faith is, is yielded to the sovereign timeline of God. And why do I say that? Because look at what it says here. They died in faith without receiving the promises. These men of old did not fully see the fulfillment of the promises that were given unto them. I mean, think about Abraham. He was given such a magnificent problem, a promise, such an outstanding promise, such a mind-bending promise. You will be the father of many nations. Innumerable people will come from you. Look at the stars, Abraham. Love that there in Genesis. God says, come out of the tent in the dark. Look up into the galaxies. Look at those stars. As innumerable as those stars are and as innumerable as the sand of the sea is, so will your descendants be. What's the problem with that? Abraham doesn't even have one kid. So Abraham's looking around going, okay, how's this going to happen? <laughs> it's not going to happen, Abraham. It's not going to happen, Sarah, when you're young and vibrant. It's going to happen when you're old and crusty and you can't do it. It's going to happen when God brings you to the very brink where you don't think you're going to be able to make it and God is going to fulfill His promise. In a supernatural way. By getting you to trust in the God of the impossible. And they waned. They wavered. And they became manipulative. They tried to do it on their own. So they produced a child of the flesh. And Ishmael. And God says, no, Ishmael is not going to live before me. It will be Isaac. Exactly as I promised. And it will be on his timeline. And that is what the hope that we have is all about. Brothers and sisters, we are called to endure precisely because our lives are going to go on and on and on in the struggle of sanctification. And you may not see the realization of the promises of God in the time that you think He should give you. But He'll do it in His time. Look with me at chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Just to see this. That what He is provoking us to do is to endure as we have faith in the unseen. Hebrews 10, 35 says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence 
which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Brothers and sisters, I cannot hold out to you a reward any greater than this. If you ask me for the impetus of the Christian life, I can't give you anything better than this verse. I cannot present you with a greater incentive to fight on, as Paul says, the fight of faith. I can't give you a greater incentive than to say you will be so rewarded beyond your wildest dreams. And we're going to talk about that. But you will be rewarded beyond your wildest dreams. It will exceed your wildest expectation. Your soul was created for this very purpose that you may have the capacity to enjoy and to revel in infinity. And we get disappointed Because somebody looked at us weird at work. And we get disappointed because our spouse did something that we don't like and we're ready to throw in the towel. We get disappointed because we have a kid that's rebelling and we're ready to throw in the towel and we don't want to walk the Christian life anymore. And we lose sight of this incentive. That living like a pilgrim means that regardless of what happens from your vantage point, don't throw away your hope. Regardless of what you may suffer, don't throw away your hope. Our brother Marshall. Father, please heal our brother Marshall. Comfort him or be with him in Jesus' name. But our brother Marshall has been riddled with suffering. Just last night, they don't know if he had a heart attack or a stroke. But they had to whisk him away in the ambulance. And there goes... Paula, and there goes Martha, and they're terribly concerned for him, as we all are. But he is, God has apparently set in front of him a life of suffering. It's coming. It's not getting better, folks. It's getting worse. And sure, God can heal, and God can change things, and God can repair his his body. But what I am prepared to say is, based on this, Marshall, if you're hearing this, don't throw away your hope no matter what you suffer. Hold on. No matter who is doing what in the church today, don't throw away your hope. No matter how many people are apostatizing into a loveless Christianity, do not apostatize and throw away your hope. The promise of a pilgrim life is unlike that of the world of the unregenerate and the unelect because our hope, brothers and sisters, does not disappoint. Never, ever, ever. And... You want to see something crazy? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter... This is crazy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, to get a glimpse, to get a real, actual a snapshot of this otherworldly mentality that Scripture calls us to, look at, uh, look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. You may not have thought about this. First of all, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority. Watch this now. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. 
Why is that so crazy? Paul, you're asking us to pray for people in authority. Don't you understand that it is Nero who is going to throw you into a dungeon? And eventually Nero is going to put your head on a chopping block and off with your head. How can you possibly call us to a quiet and tranquil life? (laughs) This is crazy! Don't you know who Hillary Clinton is and Donald Trump? How can we possibly pray with thanksgiving for kings and people in authority so that you can lead a quiet life? I'll tell you how you do it. By faith in the promises that it doesn't matter what happens in November, Christ is King and Christ is Lord of all. And it doesn't matter what the rising and fallings of the kingdoms of this world do as they, as they, as they rise and fall and as they fall as quick as they rise. Oh, remember that when the apostle Paul was alive, Rome was considered the city of the gods. Rome was considered the ends of the earth. Rome was everything only to be finally toppled and crumbled by inward immorality and external military threats where the barbarians finally in 410 A.D. came and sacked the great cities of Rome and toppled the empire that was once considered to be the throne of God Himself. We have to keep our minds on this hope. This is what all pilgrim life is all about. That we have a hope that the world simply doesn't have. And our hope never disappoints. And what this leads us to now, follow me, I've decided to take a very puritanical approach to this scripture. I'm going very slow. Sorry if you're disappointed. I'm not going all the way to verse 16, but I can't do it. There's so much here. Not just countercultural identity, not just countercultural hope that never disappoints, but finally a countercultural life that is what is required in order to enter the hall of faith. A countercultural life, of course, I am zooming in on those all important words, strangers and exiles on the earth. That's what we are. That's what we're supposed to be. And a countercultural life I am saying is that God is calling us to live in such a way that runs smack dab against and in the face of our culture. I don't know how else to say it. Our society. That we esteem things that they don't esteem. And the things they esteem, we do not esteem. So that there is necessarily a residing and abiding enmity in the pilgrim's life. And as a matter of fact, the more you try to live for Christ, the greater the hostility and the enmity you can expect to become. What does Titus tell us? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is a Bible promise. This is not a perhaps, a maybe, it will happen. I want to look at three things here considering, uh, concerning 
the countercultural life. I want to give you the basis, the manner, and the context of this life. Number one, what is the basis of this life? Look back at Hebrews 11.13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, watch this now, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What is the basis of this life? The confession. Do you see that there? Hamalageo. This Greek word, hamalageo, uh, essentially says, uh, means to say the same thing. And really, when you flesh it out, the word speaks about um, the act of agreeing or conceding that something is factually true. However, the NIV and the ESV both do err in their interpretation of this text. I believe the NIV has admitted, they admitted that they were strangers and exiles. I think that's wrong. The ESV also, they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles. I think that's far too weak. The word here is confessed. There was a confession, a positive confession. What this confession means is that our life is not only countercultural, it's diametrically opposed to the unbelieving world around us. That's what it is. And the word confession has already been uh, suggested throughout the book of Hebrews to be a very significant word uh, in uh, theologically speaking. For example, we are to confess... That Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the high priest, the apostle of our creed and of our confession. It also refers to our confession in the broad sense of the word that we confess our faith in the gospel. It also speaks about our our uh, new covenant hope that that is the the essence and the, the content of our confession is the hope that we have because of the new covenant, which just means because of the work that Jesus, our mediator, our substitute, our sacrifice did. Finally here, it refers to our willingness to confess who we are as new covenant people of God, namely that we are strangers and that we are exiles. That's the basis of a countercultural life, the confession And this is where, again, we need to be willing to do some self-examination. Have you honestly, as you appraise yourself, is your appraisal such that you are ready to take upon yourself the identity of an exile and an alien in this world? Something we're going to need to grow in for the rest of our Christian life. I don't want to focus too long there because we need to get to the manner. The manner of our countercultural life is captured by the all-important words, strangers and exiles. This is truly magnificent. This is really the heart of a pilgrim's life. It is a confession about who we are now as we live between the ages. And Stephen Yule's chart uh, for the Emmaus Conference was so helpful with that, that we are in between this age and the age to come, and we are now living in the tension of this world. We, now, we, we know that the present evil age is not our final home. It is not our ideal way of life, because everything about this evil age is ultimately contrary to Christ and is of the spirit of Antichrist. That's why we're incompatible. Two things need to be said right here. God delivers us from the present evil age. And number two, He expects us to live in a way that will often fly in the face of this present evil age. In Galatians, 
uh, after the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1.4 that God had delivered us, rescued, He rescued us from the present evil age, he goes on to say that the world, as it were, which is there kind of synonymous with the present evil age, the world was dead to him. Galatians chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 14. Galatians 6.14 says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what what significance has the cross for Paul? Oh, the cross! That's where Jesus died. That's where Jesus made atonement. Yes, but it has an abiding value for you and for me because it has altered everything. Through the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. But notice the simple implications of the terms themselves. The Greek word stranger, xenos, is the word that means or speaks of an unrecognized foreigner in a land. This term emphasizes the idea of not belonging. And as I saw that, I thought to myself, is this the way that I feel about living in this world? Do I legitimately say to myself, I don't belong here? I mean, it just reinforces the concept that this is not our home, brothers and sisters, because we do not and cannot fully identify with it because of its sinful sub-biblical standards. Peter captures the essence of this. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. 1 Peter chapter 4. Stay with me. We're almost there. 1 Peter chapter 4. He just captures the essence of this not-belonging aspect of this Greek word xenos, Look at, look at, uh, beginning of verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. That is to suffer. A pilgrim life is a, is a life of suffering. Arm yourself with the same purpose. Because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, they're talking about the fact of, uh, passing through death. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer in the lust of men, but for the will of God, for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Boy, Peter just... Cuts to the heart, doesn't he? he? Just doesn't hold anything back. That's why I love the Bible. The Bible is so brutally honest. It just doesn't hold back. It's not a respecter of persons. Because God's not a respecter of persons. It comes from Him. In all this, here it is. Talk about not belonging. In all this, speaking about the world, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation and they malign you. In other words, expect that if you live an alien pilgrim life, a stranger in this world, expect that the world around you will be shocked and in awe and disgusted that you do not want to run with them into total dissipation, into total excess and lasciviousness and immorality. They will be perplexed that you don't like the dirty jokes at work. They'll be perplexed that you don't want to go with them to the bars and the clubs after work and hang out. 
They will be perplexed that you're not willing to dress like that anymore. Let them be perplexed. They're damned. They're damned. They are blind, brothers and sisters. They are blind. They're deaf and damned by God. And they're on their way to eternal punishment. Asaph said, I almost envied the wicked, Psalm 73, until I considered their end. Oh, their end is so dreadful. How can I possibly envy somebody on the way to eternal perdition? There's another aspect here. The term exile, stranger exile. Exile, the word is peripidemos. And this word um, speaks about the fact that we are sojourners and temporary residents. So a similar word as xenos, but a little bit different. Why? Because the word stranger emphasizes the idea of not belonging, but the word exile emphasizes the idea of not staying. Isn't that glorious? You don't belong because you're not staying. It's not your home. You're not staying here. Should the Lord return and rapture us out of here? Get us out of here. I know I said the word rapture and all of you just went, whoa, wow. Where's he really at? You guys. Right? You're tracking with me, right? You know where I'm at, I think. Yeah, but no question about it. Christ will return. We will be caught up together in the air and we will always be with the Lord whether the Lord takes us through the parousia, whether the, the, the eschaton, the end, uh, whether the Lord takes us down because of a imperceptible microscopic germ that's at work in our body right now, whether He will take us through an invisible thing called a cancer cell, whether God takes us through an accident, whether God takes us through calamity, through a, a, a supernatural disaster. Not a natural disaster, of course, it's supernatural. There's no such thing as naturalism in the Christian faith. It's a supernatural disaster. That's what hurricanes and earthquakes and volcanoes and twisters are. They are supernatural disasters because we are not naturalists. It's not just the earth doing its thing. I will remind you who controls everything. The maker of all things. We're reminded of that the minute you see Jesus walking on the water and telling the the waves and the wind and the storm to cease. They follow His commands. However, the Lord chooses, as Jesus says, to summon us to Him where our soul is required by Him. Oh, this is the maddening thing of preaching to a group of college students. And I've become a bit accustomed to it. Maybe if you come out on a Wednesday to UNT with me where I'm preaching, maybe you'll still be shocked and awe. I'm still sometimes shocked, but for the most part, I've kind of seen it all. So, But just to see college students just scoffing and mocking and doing everything they can to ridicule 
uh, uh, these, you know, to, to mock the gospel, to understand. And I tell them over and over. I tell them over and over. I plead with them and tell them, don't you realize that Jesus said one day, uh, your soul is going to be required of you. And if you do not live to be rich to God, God will utter those earth-shattering, eternally condemning words, you fool. Your soul is required of you. And now, who's going to get all your stuff? Who cares? Who cares who gets your stuff when you're dead? There's no U-Hauls connected to hearses, folks. It doesn't happen. Last point. Just a reminder to us that as we live this countercultural life, we're live, living like strangers, living like exiles. We know we don't belong and we know that we're not staying. And finally, we are not, we are not, um, you know, optimists in the superficial sense of the word. We are realists. Look at the text. Strangers and exiles on the earth. Tase gaze. Epites gaze. It is this earth. This is the scene. This is the, this is the stage of the drama of redemption. This world is the stage where God's drama is unfolding for His sovereign purposes, but also for our own lives. This is the stage upon which our sanctification will take place. We live in this present evil age. Do not be deceived. This world is passing away and the lust thereof. We live in this world that's filled with obstacles and opposition to our pilgrim life. It won't be easy. It won't be easy. God one day is going to reverse our fortunes. I only say that because Scripture makes it very clear that the world will stand in total opposition to us. I only say that because we know that we are promised trials. But guess what? John three uh, sixteen thirty three. What is the final word? It is not that in this world we will have trial. It is not that in this world we have temptation. It is not that in this world we're going to have suffering. It is not that in this world we will be surrounded by sin and the devil and and and, and demons and 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 all of it. The final word is take courage. That's so glorious for us. Look at John 3.16. These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Oh man, peace in the storm. In the world, you will have tribulation. Jesus promises that. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Yes, we are aliens. Yes, we are strangers. Yes, we will be in conflict with the world around us. But the refrain of the believer is peace, is courage, is the supremacy and the victory and the vindication of Jesus Christ. Because He conquers, we conquer. Because He reigns, we will reign. Because He overcame, we will overcome. That's how it works. Let's pray. Father, how easy it is for us, Lord, 
to lose sight of our pilgrimage. We confess and we humbly admit to you that we get busy. We get busy and we lose sight of eternity. But would you help us, Lord, as we can continue to consider the theology of Hebrews here? Would you help us, Lord, to be ever mindful, not of the temporal, but of the eternal, not of the visible, but of the invisible, so that we may lead lives that honor you and glorify you, that reflect that we are, in fact, taking our pilgrimage serious and that we recognize ourselves as those that are on the precipice of eternity, eternal life. It is one breath away every day. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see the reality of this, Lord, and help us and loosen our grip on the things of this world, we pray. Cause us to be infatuated with heavenly things, with eternal things. As the Apostle Paul says, set your minds in heaven where Christ is seated above. Help us to do that, Lord. It's in Christ's glorious name that we pray. Amen.